You are listening to a message from City Church, located in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. For more information on City Church, or for additional resources, including service times, recommended readings, and additional audio, please visit citychurchpa.org. It is a um, joy to be here this morning, and um, this is not my first time at City Church. It's actually my third time, Um, and... The I think I've actually been here for one of the um, one of these reunion not reunion but anniversary weekends where um, a gentleman from Texas came and preached um, and that was while my daughter who when she was part of the One Life program uh, this would be three years ago uh, you know she looked all over she looked all over for a church up there in that area. I said, you got to go and at least try Raphael's church once. She came once, and she said, Dad, he's the best preacher I've ever heard. I was like, man, I got to work on my stuff. <laughs> no, um, she was blessed, and that was the year that one life got cut short because of this thing that sprung on the world, COVID, and so uh, she did not have much time with you all, but she loved her time, and she was so excited. She's uh, going to be graduating from Liberty here in May, but she was so excited uh, to hear that I was coming to preach that uh, she said, man, if I wasn't in Virginia, I would come with you, Dad. So um, I am glad to have the opportunity to be here. It is a joy to know Raf and Heidi and... Uh, just be part of the network. And l- let me just say something about um, my stature. It typically gets uh, acknowledged. And, um, and then, you know, on a day like today when the 49ers um, are playing the Eagles, let me just say something. Anyone in this room with a box is as tall as I am. Anyone here in this room? Well, you may need two sacks of potatoes, but carrying those over your shoulders will have as much mass as I have. So, there's something about our culture that acknowledges height and size and things like that and and elevates that. But what I want you to hear me say is that um, before the God of the universe, it means nothing. I'm, the, the difference in my stature and the thing that I've been recognized my whole life is literally insignificant. Think about the Tower of Babel, how God had to almost, it's, it, when he, in that story, it's almost like, let's go down to see what these guys are building. The, the most impressive thing that man could produce, God had to squint. It was like a pimple on the, on the face of the earth. And so the fact that I'm four foot 31 really means nothing. And the fact that I played 
for the University of Georgia, even though we are two-time national champs. I w- <laughs> means nothing. And I say that with sobriety because I'm sure many of you heard that within the last couple weeks, as the University of Georgia was back in Athens and they'd had a big celebration and a parade uh, and the town was adoring the football players, that night, one of the rising stars of the Georgia Bulldog team was got, got into a car accident and lost his life. I know nothing about that young man, but I know that when he stood before Jesus, the University of Georgia football team meant nothing on whether he would be accepted. So I say that uh, just as a matter of perspective. I am thankful that I have the opportunity to preach on Exodus 32. Um, I've never preached on this text before, and it was a great study. So I want to start off with a question. If you, and and I literally want to hear from you, if you were to ask 100 people in Williamsport this afternoon, this one question, what are three characteristics of God, however they understood God, Three characteristics of God. What are some of the answers you think that you would get in response? Just love, love, all-powerful, gracious, holy, angry, judgmental, merciful. Good. All of those. I, I assumed uh, I was kind of wrote down my own list, and y'all got all the ones that I wrote. Um, I think, though, that there is one attribute that I could pretty much go to Vegas and guarantee that I could put money that nobody would say. And that is, if we were to ask 100 people in any place in the United States, tell me three characteristics of God, they would not say God is jealous. God is jealous. Because it seems as if that is something that would be unbecoming of God. But the story that we're going to look at today is all about the jealousy of God. In fact, the title of my message is The Jealousy of God and the Stupidity of Idolatry. Now, the problem when we come to a text like Exodus 32 is that we assume that for us today, it is simply just informational, right? We don't live like this. We don't, uh, we don't have golden calves. We don't, um, you know, maybe there are people in the world or Hindus that have idols, but, but we're Christians. We don't do that. And, and, and then you think, well, okay, well, maybe there are some Christian groups like the Catholics or the Orthodox that kind of get borderline close to this whole idolatry thing with their statues and icons, but, but we're evangelicals. Like, we're people of the word. We don't need to really think much about this other than kind of reminding ourselves of the story. It's informational. 
And to that, if that is the feeling that you have, I want to just ask you to be careful. Because idolatry is not far from any of us. In fact, I believe that wherever I preach, I am always preaching to idolaters. In fact, if I'm preaching in front of a mirror, I am preaching to an idolater. Because idolatry is not primarily about form. Idolatry is about worship. John, the apostle, the one who loved God and was astounded that Jesus loved him in return, in his first letter, the very last thing he says to close it out, It's almost like this whiplash moment, like, how do we get on a new subject? And why is there nothing after it? Is he says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from idols. Was he just assuming that they were going to be like Rachel of the Old Testament, stealing her father's household gods and hiding them? Were they... Was, she, was John just assuming that the Christians that he was talking to in that day were like the Hindus of the day or whatever, and that they had their little temples and idols and statues and altars and what? I don't think so. Because the Bible does not limit idolatry to the form of, of statues or whatnot. Ezekiel chapter 14 is an instructive chapter, and I encourage you to read it later today. But in that chapter, he starts off, and God tells the prophet that the people, particularly the elders of the people, had taken their idols into their heart. And so God's people were worshiping from their heart things other than God. So idolatry really isn't about the form, although the form is forbidden. But it is a reflection of what's going on in the heart. And this is why a passage like Exodus 32, which talks about idolatry, is very important for us to look at. Now, when you come to Exodus 32, you really don't have to wonder why it's in there and what we are to take away from it. And the reason is, is because the Bible elsewhere tells us exactly why it's here. In fact, it, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you right now to put your finger or some kind of bookmark. I don't know how you do this if your Bible is your phone, but whatever. Um, hold the Exodus 32, and I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 with me. Because the Bible and the Apostle explicitly talks about what we're going to read in, First Corinthians, or in uh, Exodus 32. So, I'm going to read verses 1 to 5 before I make a comment. Paul says, For I want you to know, brothers... 
that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, with some metaphorical language, Paul is talking about the Exodus generation right here. But he's talking to Christians. He's talking to a church of Jew and Gentile, and he refers to them as brothers, but he talks about their fathers. So we know that there is at least a Jewish contingent there in the Corinthian church, but he's talking to Christians. It talks about when they were under the cloud, the, the pillar of cloud that uh, led them and that they passed through the sea, the Red Sea, and they were baptized proverbially, metaphorically, into Moses by, because of those events. They all ate from the same spiritual food, which was manna. They found it every day, except for the sixth day, they found two days worth. They all drank from the same spiritual drink. It was the the, the water that God had provided for the people in the desert, and which was a picture of Christ. And yet all of these provisions that God had made for the people of Israel did not mean that God was pleased with them. And that's really important, that just because God provides, it does not mean that he is pleased. God has other and deeper motives and ways to know, to show if he is pleased. But look at verse 6. Now these things, what things? These things that we've just talked about. What you've been talking about in your study on the book of Exodus. And by the way, I took the liberty to listen online, and I don't know who I'm talking to, but you got some fabulous teachers. I know Raphael's the best preacher on the planet, according to my daughter, but you got some others that can flat teach, so praise God for that. As you have been breaking apart Exodus, just remember that those are not just informational. Those are lessons, examples for us Christians. That's what Paul's saying there in verse 6. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. You see that? That's the purpose of studying the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, is that we might not desire evil. Verse 7 continues this. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And this is a direct quote from the passage in Exodus that we're looking at. That the people ate and drank and rose up to play. Now, 
Let me just say it again. The reason that you all are studying this, the reason that you study the Bible is not so that you can have eternal life. The Pharisees had that false nuance missed. Jesus said in John chapter five, you study the scriptures for in them you think that you have eternal life. But these are they that testify of me, Jesus is saying. But you won't come to me in order to have life. So the reason we study the Old Testament is to learn from their example, to repent of any evil desire that we see, to avoid God's displeasure, but ultimately to come to his means of salvation. So it is my assumption that as you've gone through this, week in and week out, you've been pointed back to Christ. So let's get back to, we're going to be coming back to 1 Corinthians 10, so put a bookmark somewhere, come back to that a little bit later. Let's go back to Exodus 32. Chapter 32 of Exodus, I'm sure you know this, picks up the narrative of the book, which was interrupted after chapter 24. Okay, so 25 through 31 is God giving detailed instructions about worship to Moses while they're up there on the mountain. So let's Actually, turn back eight chapters to Exodus chapter 24 because that is where this was, narratively, this is where they left off. We're going to briefly look at this before we get to our text. 24 chapter 1 says that then God said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, that's Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. So, this is the sixth time that Moses has gone up the mountain. Hadn't always been to the top, but it's his sixth ascent, right? Now, and this time, on the sixth time, Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders seemed to only go partway and probably not all that far up, but far enough away from the people. The people were not allowed to come, but they went far enough up there and were told in verse 10 of chapter 24 that they had an encounter with God. It says there, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. We don't know how much they saw of God, but they saw God. Enough so much that Moses has to write in verse 11, and God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, meaning he didn't kill them for seeing them. So they have the... They, they, these leaders are brought up in order to have an encounter with God and they are allowed to live. And then in verse 13 of chapter 24, Moses and Joshua continue to go further up the mountain and the elders are told to stay where they are towards the bottom. And as they go up, uh, Moses leaves Joshua to go to the top of the mountain alone. We see that in verse 18. But before they leave the bottom of the mountain, 
There's something very important to see. Verse 3 of chapter 24. Before they'd gone up, it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so the nation of Israel, right there, is born. The covenant is ratified. God has told them the rules, and the people have agreed to these rules. Now, what were the rules, people of Israel, that had received? Well, it wasn't the full law, because that keeps coming out, even while they're up on the mountain. But they had, up to this point, received the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, as well as some of the other laws. So when they said that all the words of the Lord, that the Lord has spoken, we will do, they have committed themselves to obeying at least the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, Commandment number two is you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for the Lord your God. I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And they heard this and they said, we will do it. We'll do it. We will not disobey the commandment of the Lord. And then the leaders go up and the people are left there. And we can understand why they would be appropriately terrified because they see this massive mountain and there's a cloud covering and it's dark and there's lightning and thunder and the mountain is smoking, we're told. And there there is a sound of a trumpet blasting. Literally, can you imagine this? This is like Mordor from Lord of the Rings on steroids, right? Like, we read this story and we kind of like, oh, that's interesting, right? But man, when you watch Lord of the Rings, like, did you want to hang out with Gollum on that trip to Mount Doom? No. And that wasn't nearly as intimidating in this. But what's interesting is that Moses in chapter 20 tells them that this is just a test. This is a test, guys. You don't have to be afraid as long as you don't sin. This is a test. God is testing you. And then lastly, in chapter 20, verse 23, it says, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourselves gods of gold. So, When Moses had shared the words of the Lord and all the rules, and they had explicitly agreed to these rules, for the next 40 days, six weeks, not quite six weeks, Moses and Joshua were away. 
The 70 elders were away for a while, but it seems as after a period of time that they had made their way back down the mountain and were among the people. And Aaron and her were to be the ones who were responsible for leading during this time. And I believe, although it's not explicitly stated in this, that the reason that God brought Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders up that mountain to have that encounter with God was so that they would be to the people a voice of reason and logic that we do not play around with this God. This God is unbelievably mighty and holy. We just saw the bottoms of his feet and it was standing on something something that looked like pavement and, and it was as clear as the heavens. We felt as if we should have been killed just for that simple infraction, but the Lord had mercy upon us. So we cannot play around with this God. And then in verse 24, chapter 24, 17, we're told that the appearance of the glory of the Lord to the people at the bottom was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So you can understand why they would be terrified. Which leads us to Exodus chapter 32. And I want to break it up into two basic ways. And the first is verses 1 to 6. And that is what is occurring at the bottom of the mountain and verses 7 to 14 is what is happening at the top of the mountain. What's happening at the bottom of the mountain is pure and simple. One word, idolatry. And so I want us to look at four characteristics from this text of an idolater. And I'm hoping that as we look at this, you can look not just in an informational way, but in a reflective way upon your own life. The first one is this. An idolater recognizes that he is needy, yet seeks an answer that he can manage. An idolater recognizes that he is needy, and seeks, yet seeks an answer that he can manage. The people of Israel were scared. We had been scared too. But what did they do in their fear? They'd already been told by Moses in chapter 20, you don't have to be afraid. This is a test. Just do what God says. Obey the covenant. But the people wanted help. Moses was gone. He hadn't been gone this long. The one who had led them out. And, and, and they no longer had a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire that led them. They had this inferno on top of a mountain that looked like it was gobbling up this mountain. What chance did they have? And they were scared. 
But they had forgotten within six weeks' time all the ways that God had already helped them. But not just six weeks' time. They had forgotten from that very morning that the God that they were following provided for them bread that very morning. And they got afraid. And they forgot God's blessings. And they, they said, we have to have Something to lead us. We, we can't stay here forever. This is not a, a reasonable location to put down a neighborhood. We got to get out of here. How are we going to get out of here? There's a destructive cloud up there, and Moses, who knows what happened to him? We need a God. Make for us a God, Aaron. Make for us gods. That's what they said. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of us. But what they wanted was not a holy God, not an unlimited God, not an eternal God, not an infinite God. They wanted a manageable deity, a form that maybe demonstrated strength and virility, but it was manageable. A calf is not terrifying. And so that's what an idolater does. He has a need in his life, and he seeks an answer that he can manage. And that is what we do in our idolatry. Our temptations to idolatry are seeking to meet a need, yet we want to maintain control of that. Our idolatries may seem very benign, the respect of a spouse, the security of a retirement plan, the week-in, week-out excellence of a preacher, the fact that I can come to church and nobody's going to ever say anything insensitive. Our idolatry can be that our children are healthy or that we live long lives without pain. Or our idolatry can be, it's anything that comes in our heart and makes us question the goodness and control and power of God. Idolatry is always popping up and we seek to meet that need with something that we control. Second characteristic of an idolater is that they're delusional. Look what they say in verse 2. So Aaron said to them, take off your rings of golden that are in your ears, your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hands and fashioned with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Excuse me? I mean, just back in verse 1, they said at least they said Moses brought us up out of the land of Egypt, but now they're, this thing just appears and they say, well, this is what brought us up out of Egypt. I mean, these people were deluded and that's what sin does. Idolatry makes you do stupid 
things. I mean, that's, that's self-evident. I mean, you can look at your last week and ask yourself, how many stupid things did I do that I don't want anyone to know about? And trace it back, and there's going to be something in your heart that made you do that. Defends yourself. It's because idolatry captures our hearts. Look what it says, Stephen, in his last defense in Acts chapter 7, verses 38 to 40, references this thing. But look what he's, I'm just going to read it. You don't have to turn there. This is Acts 7, 38 to 40. He says, talking about Moses, this is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, thrust Moses aside, and in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And as for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So this is talking about Exodus 32. Stephen's saying it to as his last defense in Acts chapter 7. But look, it says, in their hearts they had turned to Egypt, saying, make for us gods who will go before us. It's almost as if what they're saying is they wanted a golden calf to lead them back into slavery because their hearts were afraid of what freedom might actually entail. And that, my friends, is very stupid. But when you sin and when I sin, because we think it's going to meet some need, we are tempted to do very stupid things. In a room this size, I know none of you. I have no reason to be thinking of anyone. But it would not surprise me if there is someone here who is contemplating a divorce, adultery, fornication. There's maybe some teenager who's contemplating going against their parents instruction to protect themselves from pornography because there is a there is something driving them there's there's a lust there's a covetousness for something that they don't have and it's going to lead them to do something stupid there's a business person in this room who's tempted to cook the books. There's a student in this room who's tempted to cheat or get something that, that doesn't belong to them or, or tell a lie that's eventually going to require lie after lie after lie until it all comes crumbling down because you're trying to meet a need of your heart that nothing was designed to meet except the one true living God. And that's why idolatry makes you do stupid things. Idolatry makes us think that there are no consequences in the moment. 
And so we go back to the same cesspool of sin time and time again that never satisfies. And it's true of all of us. It's true of all of us. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 speaks to this. God says to the prophet, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. That's number one. But they have, number two, hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water, talking about idolatry. They're seeking, they're rejecting the one true thing that could satisfy them and trying to make something that they can manage that will never satisfy them. It's like a broken cistern bringing it down, and it's delusional and stupid. The third thing idolaters do is they oftentimes bring their idolatry and synchronize it with their true religion. And this is what Aaron did. Aaron tried to mix God into the idolatry. Aaron should have, and the 70 elders should have, and Nadab and Abihu should have said, when those people said, make for us an idol, they should have said, no stinking way. We have seen God. We are not going to turn again. We know what he said. He said, don't make it idol made of it, make anything cast in gold. We are not going to do this. But what did Aaron say? He said, all right, I'll make this thing over here. And then he said, I built an altar, and tomorrow we're going to have a feast to Yahweh. See that? He syncretized it. He should have just stopped them. But they tried to spiritualize their rebellion. And man, Christians are awesome at doing that. Can't tell you how many counseling sessions that I've had of people who are telling me, I believe that God is leading me. I just feel it in my heart, Pastor. God is leading me to leave this person. I know it's wrong, Pastor, but the Lord is just blessing my life and fill in the blank. We syncretize our rebellion with our faith. And that's what these folks were trying to do, Aaron particularly. And then the fourth thing that we see is a characteristic of an idolater is that it leads to moral depravity says there in verse 6 that after they had uh, brought their offerings to, the, um, to be burned, the burnt offerings to the peace offerings, it says the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Almost every commentator that I've read on that, that is a euphemism for an orgy. Now, I'm certain that the people of Israel didn't come up with this idea that they were like, you know what? We just need to get drunk and naked. That wasn't their goal. But when you give yourself to idolatry and when you sever yourself away from the covenant of 
your God, you can be and often are led down paths of ungodliness that you can't even imagine going down. And that's what happened here. These people got into sexual immorality. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7, that after the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, it says in verse 8, to the Christians of Corinth that day, we must not indulge in sexual immorality. Idolatry in the heart leads to doing all kinds of depraved things. So... This is what's happening at the bottom of the mountain. What's happening at the top? The jealousy of God is happening, and the jealousy for God is happening. I read before the second of the Ten Commandments, when it prohibited uh, idolatry and engraven images, the reason is, God says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God sees idolatry form or function as an expression of hatred towards him. And God knows exactly what is happening. Moses may be caught off guard with what's going on on the bottom of the mountain, but God knows clearly and tells Moses exactly what is happening at the bottom of the mountain. And he's saying, your brother who's in charge is leading the way. And God understands the utter violation of what they have done. And he says they have, verse 7 They have corrupted themselves. Now, this is the same word and the same idea that's used in the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 6 of what had happened to the world in the days of Noah, saying that the whole earth was corrupt and filled with violence. This is the same idea. And God, just like he destroyed the earth in the days of Noah, says to Moses, I am. My glory means enough to me that I am going to wipe these people out and I'm going to start over with you. You see what idolatry means to God? God is jealous for his honor. So many times people argue against Believing in the God of the Bible because they read in the Old Testament stories of God saying, I want you to kill everybody, man, woman, and child. And sometimes in a very grotesque way. And I, and I agree in our sensitivities of our 21st century, it does sound really bad. But let me tell you, God can do that without anyone sitting as jury over him. That's who God is He can do that. If he wants to start over and wipe out and leave a small remnant to start over, he can do that. And we don't get to tell him no. God is jealous for his honor. 
And the reason we have a problem with this is because we don't understand the character of God. And it, does, and it makes sense why people, if you were to ask 100 people in Williamsport, what is, it, what is God like? And they'll say he's love and he's merciful and he's gracious and he's holy and he's powerful and he's all wise and he's creative. Yes, but he is also eternally jealous for his glory. And if we want to walk in righteousness, we must be jealous for his glory. And that's what we see Moses doing there, starting in verse 11. Moses was jealous for God's glory. And, and, and rather than saying, shoot, I'm not, I'm not messing with God. If he's going to destroy the people, I don't, you know, I don't feel great about him starting over with me. I might be down there doing the same thing if I had to been up, but... That's not what Moses does, does he? He says, please, I implore you, don't, don't do that. Don't destroy the people. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? If you look up in verse 7, God said to Moses and said, go down for your people. It's almost like God had abandoned them and said, Moses, these are your people. And, and Moses, Moses said, no, 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 no. They are your people. Don't, don't, Lord, allow your anger to burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Remember, remember, Lord, what you've done. And, 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 and Lord, don't you know what the nations are going to say? Don't you know what the Egyptians are going to say? They're going to say, God just brought him out because God is evil. And he wants to destroy these people. Don't, don't give him that reason, Lord. Don't give him that reason to say that. The nations need to know that you're not, that's not all that you are. You're not just, you're not just a wrathful, vengeful God. Oh, but Lord, one more thing. Remember the covenant that you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants. And you swore, Lord, look at this, verse 13, you swore by your own self. Because there's no one greater, the book of Hebrews tells us, there was no one greater for God to swear by, so he swore an oath by himself. And Moses says, you swore by yourself saying, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promise you I'll give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. You see that? Moses was jealous for God's glory. God was jealous for God's glory. Moses appealed to God for his own honor. We need people. I'm, I'm, I'm concluding, and we're going to have communion, okay? We need to realize that this is not just informational. This is for us, that we might not pursue evil things like they did, but that we would like be, be like Moses who stands in the gap. We need people on their knees. We need leaders to intercede according to the covenant of God. Don't destroy. Not yet. Give them one more chance. Don't destroy them. 
If you're like me, you have family members who don't know Christ. And you're sick and tired of the abuse. Or maybe classmates or somebody who just mock you. And, and you need to re- be reminded that the reason you love God and they don't love God has absolutely nothing to do with you. God did that. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. You are in, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. We are the ones who are under the sovereign grace of God and we have received mercy and we should never get so beat down that we turn away and say, you know what, that was from Moses. We need to be people who say, God, give him one more chance. Please, dear God, don't let my dad go into eternity apart from Christ. Don't let it happen, Lord. Please, for the sake of your name and for Jesus Christ, don't let him die and go to hell forever. One of the great joys of my last few weeks was when I got a text from a friend that I played with at Georgia. This guy played for 16 years in the NFL. He has more money than he knows what to do with. He's given his whole second half of his life to making sure that the gospel gets to the end of the world. And he's leveraging all the wealthy Christians that he can gather to give away their wealth so that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. But that's not what excited me. Two weeks ago, he wrote me and he said, Susan, his wife, got to baptize her sister. And I rewound 26 years, 27 years, and I was like, what? So I texted his, my friend's wife and I said, this had to have been a great day. And she said to me, 26 years of praying, and God heard everyone. He who calls us is faithful, and he will do it. Friends, don't lose the heart of Moses here. I want to conclude by saying this. You and I are tempted every day to be idolaters and not to live for the glory of God. And God has every right to consume us, to destroy us in his wrath. But there is one greater than Moses who is our advocate. And he sits at the right hand interceding for us. He is our advocate. John, who said at his last thing, little children, do not sin, keep yourselves from idols, said in chapter 2, verse 1, I write these things so that you may not sin, but if you sin, remember that you have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
Jesus Christ is the righteous one. If you are here today in any way thinking that your presence or your, your, your repentance or anything is what is going to make you right with God, you're mistaken. There is only, even your repentance is tainted. There is one who will carry you safely home, and that is Jesus Christ. Cling to him. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 14, writing to a group that was struggling to turn back to idols, says this, therefore, and I'm saying this over city church right now, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted to idolatry or anything else. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Do not use this verse, please, to say, well, God will never give me more than I can handle, as if he's talking about a busy day. It's not what this is talking about. He's talking about the temptation to anchor your hope in anything other than Christ. Friends, cling to Jesus and live jealously for the glory of God. And in whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, and in whatever you do, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, do it all for the glory of God through Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is like a hammer and like a surgeon's scalpel. And so, Lord, we just pray that it would, I pray that it would do the work that it is intended by you to do, and that, God, you would rid me, first me, Father, of the idolatry of approval, break from us the idolatry of self-importance, break us from the idolatry of comfort, free us, Lord God, from the idolatry of the approval of spouse or children or parent. And let us first live jealous for Jesus because he has taken us as his own. And it's in his name that I pray. 
Thank you for listening to this message from City Church, located in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. We hope God meets you where you are and doesn't leave you, but changes you through the work of His Son. For additional information, please visit citychurchpa.org.